This is The Mudroom, uncommon sense parenting classes with your parenting coach, Alana Robinson. Weekly nuggets of developmentally appropriate parenting wisdom to help you parent your toddlers, preschoolers, and kindergartners more effectively with less effort. The Mudroom is recorded live on Facebook every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. Now, here's Alana. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Mudroom, our weekly free uncommon sense parenting class. How is everyone today? Welcome to November. I don't know about you, but time feels like it's suddenly sped up. Like the last two years have like absolutely crawled and now everything is happening at the speed of light. (laughs) And I'm finding it hard to keep up even though I have all this lovely time during the day now. It's like all the stuff that I've been putting off for two years has suddenly come due. So it's been very busy. I hope you have been manageably busy too. (laughs) And I hope your Halloween was fun. We had a blast. It was so great for our kids to be able to hang out with friends again and go trick or treating. I just, I loved it. I loved it. All right, today I'd like to talk about how to handle a disagreement between yourself and your child's teacher, be that in daycare, preschool, or kindergarten. We're coming up on parent-teacher conferences and progress reports. I've spent the last three months supporting my clients through these disagreements, and I've talked about this previously, but it was like almost four years ago. So it's time for an update. Before we get into it though, I'd like to introduce myself to those of you who are new around here. Hi, my name is Alana Robinson, and I'm a parenting coach for parents of toddlers, preschoolers, and kindergartners. And I help you understand why your children are misbehaving and how to fix it without yelling, shaming, or timeouts. I'm your host here on The Mudroom. I'm also the host of the Parenting Posse Facebook group, and I'm the creator of the Parentability Program where I help you raise well-behaved kids of your own. So if you're watching, say hi, let me know how it's going, and of course, comment and ask questions as we go along. Also, don't forget to like and subscribe so that you never miss another class. Okay. So the first thing to do when you notice that something is happening at school or daycare that you aren't okay with, be that a discipline method, homework practices, academic pressure, academic creep, lack of responsibility for your child, whatever it is, define it for yourself first. What is it about what is going on that you're okay with? And what aspects of it are you not okay with? And write it down. Get really clear on that with yourself. Also acknowledge that you may not actually have all the information correct. We often get our info secondhand from our kids and we love them, but they are not the most reliable reporters. So if you aren't sure about something, note that. Get everything straight in your mind and preferably on paper. Having notes to refer to is really helpful. Our memories can be excellent, but they are fallible. I personally like to create a Google Doc for my notes and that eventually becomes my meeting agenda. And we'll talk about that in a second. Second is to gather your resources. I find that when dealing with professionals, doesn't matter if it's a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, whoever, I get taken a lot more seriously when I come with concrete examples and sources for why I'm concerned. So that might mean that you've got to get together some peer-reviewed research. That might mean that you need to read some books. That might mean that you need to consult with other professionals. This is why when parents come to me concerned about autism red flags in their children, I 
always direct them to the MCHAT questionnaire and tell them to print it off and bring it to their doctor. Because a doctor is going to take you a lot more seriously if you have something concrete to back up your concern. It doesn't mean it's right. I wish doctors would always believe their patients, but they will often write mothers off, especially as being overprotective. So having something tangible to back you up is worth its weight in gold. Same when talking to teachers and principals. Having concrete resources highlighted and flagged to back you up means you'll be taken a lot more seriously and not just written off as some overprotective wackadoo. We work on this a lot in parentability and we actually have resource lists for common concerns that come up frequently to help our members shorten that process a little bit. And I'll use my own example. My oldest is a November baby. So he was technically supposed to start kindergarten when he was three years old, but I chose to redshirt him and start him the year that he turned four instead. Which, by the way, I have not regretted for a single second. <laughs> so while I was emailing with the principal to enroll him initially, I had to make it very clear to her that he was to be enrolled in junior kindergarten and she was insisting that he had to stay with his birth cohort, which would have put him into senior kindergarten. And that wasn't really my concern. In Ontario, junior and senior kindergarten are always a split class, so the two years are always together. My concern was when he would start grade one. So I asked for a meeting, and I went to meet with her, and I brought a copy of the law that protects the rights of children with late birthdays to stay back a year. I also brought a study that was done by another school board in our province about the effect of late year babies starting school too early. And I brought another study about the gap between boys and girls when starting school, because I have a boy. So when she started in on, oh, he's gonna be fine, I was able to pull out my resources and say, I disagree and here's why. And it went absolutely no further than that, because once she skimmed my resources, the conversation changed dramatically. We have a saying in parentability, you are the expert on your child, so act like it. Experts have sources and can defend their stance. I get called to task for things I say here on the mudroom, on Instagram, and in parentability almost daily. So you can bet you're behind that I have sources for absolutely everything. Same should go for you as the expert on your child. Because it doesn't feel right is not a good enough reason. Because it doesn't align with our parenting style is not a good enough reason. Because I read a study once is not a good enough reason unless you have the study in hand. If you can't find your resources, don't waste either of your time. And as I said, this is where a resource like Parentability can really come in handy because I basically function as the resource librarian for my members. You can also go to the library and ask an actual resource librarian for help, as well as use tools like Google Scholar. Since I personally no longer have access to e-resources through a university, I often will make a list of resources that I can't get the PDFs for directly online, and I'll email those citations to my local resource librarian, and she emails the PDFs back. So there's really no excuses for not having your resources. Third step is to define what your ideal solution is and then accept that you will likely not get that 100%. Figure out again where you're willing to compromise and what is really that important to you and why. 
because this is going to be a negotiation. People who work with hordes of children have systems and processes to make those tasks simpler for them, which is fair. Everybody has systems that they use to simplify their lives and heaven knows anyone working with lots of little kids needs to simplify or else it all goes to hell in a handbasket. And what you're doing is asking them to change that system to an extent. So you're likely not going to get it executed exactly how you picture in your mind or how you ideally would like it to be. Coming to terms with that now will help you focus better during the actual meeting. So I often list out my ideal scenario, my acceptable scenario, and my lines in the sand, so to speak, things that I'm not willing to accept as the status quo. Fourth is to make an appointment with the actual parties concerned to discuss the issue. This is where you're going to present everything you prepared beforehand. What's bothering you, why, with your resources, and your ideal solution. And then actually listen to their side. <laughs> this is key. Most teachers really love kids but not all of them have thought critically about why they do what they do. For many teachers, they inherited resources and processes from teachers that they took over from, and this is the way it's always been done, so that's how they do it. So some may really be open to what you're talking about. Some may have a really good reason for doing things the way they are, and once you hear it, you may totally change your perspective. And some may feel totally blindsided and need time to read over your resources and meet back with you in a week or two. In Parentability, we have a whole process for this, but that's the essence of it. You share your concerns and ask them to share theirs. Own the meeting. You called it. You have to facilitate it. It's unfair to call a teacher into a meeting and then expect them to run it. They're not the one with the issue. You are. So you have to run it. Have your agenda, which remember I talked about my Google Doc with my concerns. Use your agenda, move through it, and try to leave on a high note. Between August 15th and October 26th, I did 47 teacher meetings with my clients. And often I was having to excuse myself from one so that I could go log into another. But in each of those meetings, the parents ran the meeting. I was just there for some behind the scenes coaching. Usually I didn't even have my camera or my microphone on. I was DMing with the parents in the chat to just help them word their concerns or their responses better. And I have been so proud of my clients and the administrators of their schools have been too. I've received so much positive feedback from principals that my clients were extremely prepared, organized and fair. And I'm actually going to be running a professional development session for one of the schools on how to collaboratively facilitate that type of meeting in the spring. So I know it feels scary, but this is your meeting. Treat it that way. Try and finish the meeting, no matter whether it's a pause or a finality with action steps. Things you're going to do, things the teacher is going to do, things the admin is going to do if they're involved. Everyone that was at that table or on that Zoom call should be walking away with a to-do list. And if it's a pause, you should have the date scheduled for that meeting to resume. 
it's a lot harder once everyone goes home and gets involved in other things to re-coordinate schedules to get everybody back in the same room or back on the same call. So if it's a pause, try and have that meeting date for your follow-up already set before you leave. And here's a few more tips. Express appreciation for your child's teacher often, not just when there's a problem. Being in charge of a group of young children is exceptionally difficult. It's something I personally have less than zero desire to do. I ran a day home when we lived in Alberta for exactly four months before I quit. (laughs) And when I finished my early childhood degree and all of my friends ran off and started working in daycares, I hightailed it over into early intervention because I really hate focusing on more than one child at a time. I like to get to know a kid really, really well and focus deeply on them. My brain can't handle 30 kids in a room with me. So I have a deep appreciation for those who can't. Say thank you, often. Just like kids, catch them being good. When they do something you appreciate, tell them. Give your child's teacher a heads up before you jump in whole hog with this big meeting. Send them an email asking for their side of the story first. It may be something that can be resolved really quickly. It might open a can of worms that's much bigger than you thought it was, but going in guns blazing rarely wins you friends. Whenever I approach my children's teachers, I always phrase it as, my kid said this, or I saw this, or I'm reading this, and then I follow it up with, but I'm not sure that that's correct. Can you tell me what's going on here? Give them the benefit of the doubt. A personal example again, my youngest started senior kindergarten in September and he missed junior kindergarten because he got pulled out of pre-K because of the pandemic and then we homeschooled last year. So it's his first time back in a class in almost two years. And he came home complaining that nobody wanted to play with him and his teacher was leaving him out and wasn't helping him make friends at all. Okay. Something doesn't sound right here. So I said that to his teacher team and they were like, no, he's playing constantly with other kids, but he hasn't connected with any one specific child yet. He hasn't got a bestie yet. And he's clearly missing that because he's often asking if his older brother can come and play with him. Now my boys have been home for the last two years, just the two of them together. So he's used to having a sidekick. Had I gone in guns blazing, I would have burnt a bridge. The teachers weren't doing anything wrong. Always just taking his sweet time settling in. So there wasn't anything I had to address with the school. I just had to empathize with Owen that he misses his brother during his classes. So when in doubt, slow your roll. Assume competence. And I know this is hard. I find this really hard because I generally know more about behavior management than the teachers I'm working with because they generally have had just like one or two courses during their teaching degree on behavior management. And generally that's more focused on classroom management versus individual behavior management. Whereas I have lived and breathed this for 15 years and counting. But really try and assume your teacher knows what she's talking about until proven otherwise. You will rarely win friends by going in with the attitude that your child's teacher is a basic idiot. This is a beautiful example of the cycle of success. 
Your beliefs affect your expectations, which are reflected in your actions and color your results. So if you believe your child's teacher is competent, you're going to expect competence and you'll get results in line with that. If you believe your child's teacher is a moron, you're likely going to expect incompetence and your behavior in that meeting will reflect that and you're going to get less than stellar results. Try and lead with a competence mindset. And help, volunteer, provide resources, whether they're physical things, money, or time. This is another reason that having your peer-reviewed resources is so important because going in and saying, I read that, blah, 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 then forces your teacher, if she has any hope in hell of validating or negating your concern, to go and do research, probably on her own time. Versus if you show up having done the research and she just has to read it, well, that's a much smaller task <laughs> and a much smaller ask. And again, don't just do this when you have an issue. Do it year round. If you're implementing strategies from me, send her the blog post in an email with some excerpts that you feel are particularly important. I've had a lot of people be like, why do you have a blog, a video, and a podcast that all say the same thing? Well, I do that on purpose because everyone learns differently. If you send someone a blog post from me, they can read it, they can listen to it on the podcast in the car, or they can watch it while they're making dinner. People are busy. Teachers are so much more busy. They're expected to put in time coaching and supervising extracurriculars on top of their paid hours. They have grades to document and input. If you're trying to get someone to do something for you, remove as much friction as possible. <laughs> do as much of the prep work for them as you can. And above all else, keep it respectful. Check your tone of voice and your eyes and your body language. This is also really hard for me because when I get stressed, I tend to look up at the ceiling and I do it without even noticing it, but it's often read as me rolling my eyes. So I have to be very conscious of keeping my eyes front and center. And if I'm feeling stressed, closing my eyes instead to break eye contact and give myself a rest. I have to consciously open my stance. I'm one of those people that when you piss me off, the first thing I do is cross my arms and lean away from you. I have taken so many meetings where before I start, I've put my hands on either side of the papers and I challenge myself to keep them there because it's incredible how much more productive a meeting is when your stance is open versus all closed up and removed. Bring water and snacks if it's in person. Often teachers won't have a chance to eat prior with meeting with you because they're running around and meeting with so many parents. Bring something that's pretty safe for most people like popcorn even just some nice water. The benefit of this is if you need a moment to think, you can shove some food in your mouth or take a swig of water to give yourself a hot second to collect your thoughts without it being creepy and quiet and awkward. It is totally possible to have a respectful, collaborative relationship with your child's teacher, even if you disagree. And you are the expert on your child, so never feel intimidated about bringing whatever is bothering you up. It's a relationship, just like any other relationship. You need to keep the lines of communication open or else it breaks down.
don't bottle shit up. <laughs> Talk to them about it. And most of the time you'll be able to come to a mutually acceptable agreement. And modeling for your child how to do this, that you cannot like the way someone is doing something and still be civil and work out something that works for everyone is a very valuable life lesson. They're watching us. And even if you really, really hate someone's guts, there is very little that pisses someone off more than you being unbelievably polite to them when they're being a snot. It generally makes people come up short. Like channel Michelle Obama. When they go low, we go high, right? All right. I meant for that to be short, but apparently I had a lot to say on the subject. As always, come and join us in the Parenting Posse to continue the conversation. There are lots of members who've had to navigate this situation in the past, and I'm positive that we can support you in doing it too. The link for that group is in the description. All right, have a great rest of your day, and I will see you next week for another Uncommon Sense Parenting class. Bye. You've been listening to The Mudroom on Common Sense Parenting Classes with Alana Robinson. If you like what you just heard, remember to join us live every Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, subscribe, share, and connect with us in the Parenting Posse Facebook group. This has been an Alana Robinson Family Services production.